Jay, how are you? Welcome back. Good morning, Chris. Well, 11.40. Yeah, that's morning. Yeah. My friend in California. He's, I'm on, and move on with him. That's good. Uh, <clears throat> we talked last time a little off the archaeological subject a little bit. Uh, a couple of things. And one of them was about uh, the death of uh, Kennedy. And he was shot on full national television in full daytime when I was a senior in high school in 1961. And uh, it's the biggest, uh, this coup in the United States was the biggest thing that's happened in my lifetime. So I've been very interested in this for quite a while. I have a lot of books on it, been reading it. And um, what's very upsetting is the people who were involved in the, what it means about our country, which is very different from what I thought, the more I learn about it, the more upset we can get. But at any rate, I wanted to tell a story about it. <clears throat> Susie and I were on a uh, cruise ship in the Baltic, and there was a lecture scheduled in Stockholm. And after the food, um, the a speaker was uh, Gorbachev. Uh, he's given a lot of talks since he was premier of the Soviet Union. So a lot of people have heard him. Um, his talk was primarily about glasnost and things like that, which was interesting. There was an expensive cruise, so a lot of people were heads of departments of surgery here and there and so on. There's quite an exquisite audience. And um, he got a, a Gorbachev got a standing ovation when he came in during the lunch. And he got another ovation when he left at the end. People really appreciate what he did for ending the Cold War, you know, liberating all the countries uh, that the, were part of the Soviet Union around Russia. Um, he discussed how um, people objected to his handling of the thing because uh, handling of the breakup of the Soviet Union because uh, that they should have charged fees to the countries to get free <clears throat> because they had to bring all their soldiers home and they had no place to put them and they had to provide housing and so on. So he says well, those countries should have paid for it. And there was a popular feeling among the population who said that that should have been done. But he said no, that in fact, they took all the, they stole all of the countries to begin with. They didn't pay for them. So he said, we got them for free, so we had to give them for free. He was an interesting guy. And he had an interpreter, but I think he understood English pretty well anyway. At any rate, I had an option. I was sitting kind of in front, so, and with a bright blue shirt, and I was able to be seen. And I raised my hand, and I could, and I, they called on me uh, out of about maybe, he talked for an hour and then took about four questions. I was lucky to be able to ask a question. And I wanted to ask him about what the Soviet Union knew about UFOs. But I, I asked my other question. I didn't think I could ask two under the circumstances. So I asked him a question. What did the Soviet Union know about the, let's think about the uh, assassination of John Kennedy and when did they know it? What did, what did they know and when? And uh, it was a, 
I don't think you've been asked that before because he skirted his, his chair was up on a die above us. It was a day above us. And he skirted his chair back and stored it, stared at the ceiling for quite a while. You know, maybe 15 seconds or so. He was looking at the ceiling, trying to figure out what he's going to say to this guy. So um, I think people would be interested in the answer. It took him a while to answer. But he, brought, he drew down to the audience and he said, Reno. Oh, and he had previously talked about how there had been an attempt on his life. And so these guys at the top were very aware of this kind of thing and interested in the subject. He threw his chair back and he said, well, you know, last time that I was down in Dallas, I did all the tourist things. I went up into the uh, depository and I looked at the gunshot, the gun, the gunshot route, the the shot the guy had to take. He says, I've watched all the films um, and I've thought quite a bit about it. And I, uh, uh, as you know, he did him a little there. And he says, you know, as you know, um, a lot of the documentation about this event has been hidden from the public for 50 years, 40 years, whatever it was. Anyway, the time came and went. And they didn't release much of it. Um, he says, I think that once you, that stuff is all out, that it will be clear to you that it was a conspiracy. Um, and then he went to the next question. But I think that, that um, he maybe has some inside track to knowing more than most people. Uh, he, uh, my, my, uh, <clears throat> what I can say about it? I, I, I just, uh, it, it basically confirmed, uh, a lot of the readings that I've done that there's no question that it was a, uh, a conspiracy. Oh, I was just going to say that. You know, all the people he's talking to are going to be dead before the information comes out. So but anyway, I told you yesterday that with all the readings I've done on this subject that I had made a list. And I was for as I went through a number of books. I have hundreds of books. And, and I wanted to show you <laughs> this is a list of some of the names that I've taken down. And just to show you the number, okay? There's a lot of people and a lot of stories that come out in the books when you study this subject. It's not simple. And some of the ones that I've highlighted in pink, as you saw in this list, the ones that are primarily involved that I think are involved with criminal behavior include uh, LBJ, his next door neighbor, who he walked his dog with for 20 years, J. Edgar Hoover, who actually uh, wasn't involved in the killing, but did um, eliminate a lot of people that could have spoken about it afterwards. Um, Paley, Henry Luce of Life, Carlos Marcello, Harvard Hunt, William Harvey, Cord Meyer of the CIA, David Phillips here at the CIA, David Shen. Tez Morales, General Edward Lansdale, one of his main figures, Richard Helms, Alan Dulles, H.W. Bush, 
LeMay, Lemnitzer, H.L. Hunt, so on. It's just the Dallas Mayor, R.L. Thornton, uh, George Lumpkin, Assistant Police Chief in Dallas, Bill Greer, John. There's a lot of people that know a lot that haven't said much, and that's because they're implicated. They didn't necessarily pull the trigger. We know who did that, but I think, but he's in prison down there. Hasn't been killed, but the um, he shot. Um, but a lot of these people gave an implicit uh, permission. Yeah, it's okay with me because they had a lot of motivations. He wanted to do away with the CIA. Said he would blow it to the wind. So four corners go with. After uh, he was embarrassed by the Cuban affair and. Uh, uh, he wanted to get with the oil, get away, do away with the oil depletion allowance for the oil companies to take a fair amount of tax. And he just had a lot of people that were happy with him being eliminated and it, it uh, damaged the United States during my whole lifetime. And so explain that just a little more, Jay, and just speak as clearly as you can that um, that he was going to do a tax to the oil companies. Is that right? Yeah, they get uh, <clears throat> they get a depletion allowance for using up the oil out of the land. You know, it's way down deep under the. It's maybe three hundred feet down, but they get a cash depletion allowance against it to reduce their profit for what has been sucked out of the ground, which is unusual. I mean, the timber companies don't get that. They go cut the timber off the mountain side. They don't get. Uh, a tax deduction for the timber that's been cut. So, you know, it's it's just a very unusual thing in which they set up the help for oil companies. And so, um, all those and uh, oil. I mean, you know, we're getting dividends, but uh, it's it's not fair, you know, and it's not needed anymore, and it's damaging the world's uh, health. So, what needs to be done about it? So, all those people on that list, you're saying know something or were involved somehow. Correct, in the criminal behavior, all of them. And, and so why were you saying about the um, kind of founding of the CIA being a disaster since at the beginning, the whole thing like- Oh, just well, when Kennedy became president, he found that the CIA was involved in four wars that he didn't know about. Wow. One of them was in Africa, Lumumba, and there were two others. And then there's this Cuban thing where, uh, you know, they had eventually essentially set him up so that he had to send in the uh, aircraft from aircraft carriers that were swarming around Cuba to, in order to save the little invasion that the CIA had set up. I mean, he was he he felt he would been he'd been boxed in where he didn't have much choice. They were forcing him into a war, and he was uh, very unhappy about it. And what the public the other thing the public don't know about uh, Cuba, which is interesting, is that there were three submarines under the American fleet that were uh, patrolling Cuba and keeping the, uh, at the time of the, uh, we were trying to get the missiles turned, missile ships turned around under the, under the American fleet, which was blockading Cuba, there were three Russian submarines. And uh, they were diesel subs, but they were, they had atomic um, uh, warheads in them. Oh, and the other thing that the public doesn't know and that the president didn't know is that uh, not only were there missiles which had been seen by the satellites from space, but there were um, 
there were uh, tactical nuclear missile tactical atomics in uh, in Cuba. If we'd attacked, there would have been an atomic war. At any rate, these submarines, uh, two of them, were able to just uh, scurry away. But one of them was out of uh, oxygen, for, and uh, the guys could hardly breathe anymore because they're running near. They had to surface to generate, like these diesel submarines do, they have to surface to get uh, recharge their batteries and stuff. So they were in a hard spot. They were either going to, they had a choice to die or to surface or what. And one guy on the submarine wanted to nuke the fleet and go down in glory like they were supposed to. And the Russian commissar, the communist, uh, they say he was the communist party representative on the boat, actually had a power over the commander of the submarine and said, no, we're going to surface. And they did. And the Americans saw him and they actually powered on the surface away. But if they had sent a nuclear missile up and blown away an American ship above them, it would have been World War III. We were very close to it. That person has a grave in Moscow as the man who saved the world. And people don't generally know about it. There's a good movie. It's called The Man Who Saved the World. It's uh -huh. quite a story. So uh, I don't know. The public's kind of in the dark about a lot of these things. And interesting is we find out about them one after another, way after the fact, usually. Well, that's super interesting that coming from the top of Russia was do not bomb America before they bomb us. I mean, is that correct? What? The, the, the risk was to the American fleet because he was going to send a nuclear torpedo up there to his ship and blow it up. And if there had been a nuclear explosion among our fleet, it would have been. Uh, but, they, but the order from the top, the representative on the sub that was higher than the commander, who obviously, you know, oh, spoke. Right. A, yeah, he was a political commander on the ship, a and, political a party representative. And so, so they. Fire, the commander was an old guy who was just, God, we're going to do our duty for the fatherland and blow the, blow the suckers up, you know. That would have been the end of uh, a lot of Americans. Why, Jay, why do you think that the CIA gets us involved in those wars that JFK didn't know about? Like, why do you think they're doing that or. What comes to mind? Well, we ought to change the subject back to archaeology, I think. But they, they've been uh, running them up for a long time. They got the power to run secret wars and stuff. They were, they've been out of control. They were formed. They're not a forever thing. I mean, they, they were formed from the OSS after, and there's interesting books about it, how it happened after World War II. And um, uh, I've read that the, uh, folks that set it up in the beginning ended up regretting it because it, it it's done a lot of more damage than good overall and if you read books about the cia there's lots of them that conclude that that they regretted it the ones that set it up yeah because it got out of hand it's uh and the guys in charge uh just had to, uh, too much secret power and they could do what they like and back these dictators around the world it wasn't they didn't uh, make decisions based on american principles were, were do you think that they were uh communist in tendency or anti-communist in tendency i'm not sure how to answer your question they, they they're obviously and what they were 
saying is, of course, they were anti-communist and they did a lot of things that were um, contrary to our beliefs and principles uh, of freedom uh, on, on this business of anti-communism. I mean, the, the whole story of Vietnam is, is the same thing. I mean, we, Vietnam started as a CIA war to begin with before the army got it. Um, that's just another example of CIA getting out of control. Of course, they had death squads running all over. It's the Lansdaler's were involved. It's just real it. I think he was one of the CIA, one of the Daily Papers was just, just uh, uh, running amok. You know, it's just, it's very interesting. You know, supposedly Americans believe in the right of people to determine self-determination. And Quebec wanted to get free of Canada, right? Recently, not, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, whenever it was. Recently, I remember that, and there was this plebiscite in Canada to decide whether Quebec was gonna be allowed to break away from Canada. And with, we agreed with the process. I mean, it was supposedly, yeah. And, and um, the free Quebecers, they lost the election. They didn't leave Canada. Probably, you know, these kind of things happen now and then. And I thought that was a very peaceful way to resolve the issue. And so did a lot of people, but it was in accord with the right of people to vote and the self-determination. All right. <laughs> well, Lincoln didn't do that. He forced war in the United States. And, uh, Put journalists in jail that objected to what he was doing and so on. We, it, we don't even abide by our own principles a lot of the time. It's strange. Was he, was, I just saw a movie or a TV show where the union literally went down to the South. What was that? It was, uh, it was Clint Eastwood uh, and you had these rebels in Missouri. Uh, what movie was that? Uh, Josie, Josie, uh, yeah. Uh, the legend of Josie Wales, I think. And I mean, the union was tough. They were killing, you know, people. I mean, is that an order from Abraham Lincoln was to, if you don't go with us, then we kill you? I mean, was it that type of force? Wars are pretty terrible. I don't know that. I haven't seen that movie, so I don't. Let's change the subject back to something into archaeological, which is what I'm trying to do here. Um, well, well, go ahead. Take the conversation wherever you want to. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. At the, you know, one of the, it's a very interesting subject that, that I've gotten into um, through some friends in, in Ohio. Uh, I've been giving lectures on archaeology in uh, Michigan for 14 years now, and I'm going there again next month. And uh, so, but, and at the MES in Ohio, and I, through friends, I've gotten involved with this Burroughs Cave situation, which I mean, is very uh, a name that you can throw on the internet, and uh, you'll find that uh, a lot of people call this whole thing a fake, that everything's been found that came out of the cave is fake, that the whole thing is nonsense, and so on. And uh, I understand my associate, Jim Schertz, is a, a um, emeritus professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, talked with the state archaeologist in Illinois at one point, and they just kind of ushered him out of the room and said, no, you can't, 
you can't uh, talk to us about Burroughs Cave because it's all fake and it's nonsense. And just we're not going to deal with that. We, we want to get out of here. On the other hand, we don't want to have anything to do with it. It's embarrassing. You know, people that are archaeologists that don't want to do it. So, but the problem is that they've passed, passed this law that if you find any bodies or things, you got to report them to the state right away. Because now we know where the cave is and we're working on it. I'm one of the, I'm helping the group that's doing the work. I wanted to show you a uh, couple of stones that I think people would find interesting so that we can change the subject into archaeology. As you know, the um, we discussed in the last, uh, we discussed the last time we recorded, did a little recording, the, um, it was Cleopatra's son with Mark Antony named Helios, or the son, S-U-N, that uh, was taken at the age of nine on Mauritanian ships and brought to the New World on routes that were known for thousands of years uh, to keep him from being killed by the Romans because they had uh, put to death uh, Cleopatra's older son by Caesar, uh, Caesarea. And uh, the ships had loaded, uh, I showed you last time, uh, I got a Jewish god from the Africans and a lot of people of, uh, of various nationalities that were apparently uh, on this ship or many ships. We don't know. The whole fleet disappeared, they say. And Mauritania was a very prosperous Roman province. After they had a lot of gold. At any rate, this kid, Helios, um, became the, because he was royalty, and they thought in those days that royal personages were deserved more respect than most people. Uh, they were higher and better in, in so many ways, whatever. So he was the ruler of this uh, colony for uh, his lifetime, which is independent. We think the cave existed from around 10 BC on for about 500 years. And the cave, uh, which is one of many caves we think, we think there are other caves like Pearl's Cave. They're on private property and don't have, people don't have permission to work on this project. But we think there are others. That these uh, that this colony uh, existed a long time, so it would have been the sons of Helios and so on that became the ruler of the world. But we have a lot of funerary stones that say that are like this. I'm going to show you one. This is a um, photo, or a, well, this is a picture of a stone, and at the bottom, see if I can. There, it's a curved stone, so it's hard to read. But there's an A-I-I or a B-I-I. It's, it's backwards on, on, on the thing. When I look at it, it it's B-I-I first. It's been turned around optically. But at any rate, and here's a guy in middle age with a hat, strange hat, uh, maybe a Mauritanian sort of type hat, African. But... Um, <clears throat> His image appears on many stones and in different hats. 
I've got them in maybe half a dozen different apps. This is interesting. And this AII down here is, they say is pronounced Ali or Ali'i, Ali which is kind of strange because in Hawaii, the, the royalty were called Ali'i. And there's even an Ali'i drive on Maui is along the waterfront. Here's another thing that's interesting. This is a stone. One of the these were stolen out of this cave illegally. So these are illegal objects. But, and they're worthless because they're called fake. So I can't get them appraised. Although they're unique and they're one of a kind and they're effectively priceless. This is another one. This one shows uh, an Indian headdress here on this guy on one side. And a guy with a lot of hair over on the other. Uh, with, I think, a religious sign. So that's a religious figure, whether it's Jesus or not, I'll leave up to you. But he's come across the water, you see, at the bottom. The Indian's on the land. The, the, the Jesus figure, the, the whatever, in a robe, has come across the water. Okay? And they're holding out their hands to one another. So it's there was not a lot of violence, unlike what the Spanish did. Here they are, they're trying to be friends. And look at the hands, the thumb is up, one finger's out, and another finger is, is out. It's kind of a strange looking little handshake, okay? <laughs> kind of fun because in Hawaii, the locals always go like this, you know? Hey bro, hey bro, you're a, you're a bro. Or a Filipino Hawaiian, if you do this, sticking out your car window as you pass people. Shaka shaka. So, so I just sold a condo over there to a friend who's from uh, got his master's degree in computer science from the capital of Bis from Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan. Wonderful guy and his wife has a master's degree in computer science also. He's darkened up from learning, teaching himself surfing. He looks like a Filipino Hawaii local, and the local I can't tell what a what a Bishkek guy from Bishkek normally looks like. Anyway, they think he's local, so we're driving around, and I'm this white guy, and he's on the other side of the jeep. And uh, as we pass cars, the cars are all going, "Hey, bro, hey, bro!" They think he's a local. <laughs> and he's from Bishkek. <laughs> anyway, fun. Well, Jay, do you want me to jump in with some questions or do you want to sure. tell another what, story? What do you want to do? Okay. Um, tell us about your travels over the last 25, 30 years, where you've gone with an emphasis on archaeological investigations and a lot of them. Just tell us where you've gone, photos that you've taken, and where you've been. This will be very important to share with everybody. All right. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of a, I'm not an archeologist, but there's a family history of it. My dad died at 103 a couple of years ago and uh, he uh, gave a lecture to his home where he was living in a little apartment about it was entitled three generations of archaeology because his 
grandfather had been walking down the beach in North Truro and found a bass boat. And they thought it came off a wrecked ship that had wrecked on the peak tail bars of, uh, of Cape Cod um, and known to have wrecked long before the Mayflower. And so this pieces from this, this apparently is a piece, this little brass bowl, about big one, brass. My dad knew what it was doing. And, and it's, um, it, it was washed out of an Indian grave on, and during a storm onto the beach. And his grandfather found it walking up the beach and washed out of an Indian grave from a French shipwreck uh, you know, 15, 1600 or so. So yeah, my grandparents always had a relic room there and lots of things in it, you know, uh, from the Revolutionary War and from the War of 1812. So it was an interesting place for me as a kid to see all this stuff. And um, so then I got interested in. Uh, I've been, always kind of been interested in this stuff. You know, I, it's it's uh, since childhood, but it wasn't until my dad read that ABC book by uh, Barry Fell that uh, I took it more seriously. And uh, I'd gone to Dartmouth College, which has no archaeology, no anthropology in it, and, uh, it's just basic chemistry and English and mathematics and stuff. So. When after I read the book, we met Susan and I went back to the reunion and climbed a little hill in North Pomfret. And here was a stone building up on the top of the mountain, just like Barry Fell was saying, but it's early Celtic. So. And so since then, we've been traveling. And uh, uh, I've been, um, I met in Karnak a uh, Dutch fellow who had a, his studies were in. Uh, Physical chemistry, which is a very difficult subject to keep people's attention. A lot of mathematics. It's very mathematically counted everything. And we traveled together in Europe for many years together. There's this little diesel station where I went on in Holland. And sometimes I rent cars and we just run ragged up in the mountains in Spain. So, what was interesting is that um, we never met anybody doing just what we were doing. That is, traveling to all these megalithic sites right? all through Europe. There were tourists, for sure, but nobody was doing the kind of inventory study that we were doing. It's kind of interesting. And we focused on what we could find interesting at first, which was petroglyphs, and that was the first book on how the sun got reached America, because we were able to see cipher a number of these petroglyphs in early uh, petroglyphic writing. And during that book, then later we got more into the um, rows of stone down in Karnak and on the coast of France in general. There's a number of them north of Karnak. And uh, some of the gun, you count the stones. Oh, like my buddy did, uh, Renault did. And uh, it was amazing that uh, we could make sense out of what they, these people had done. Humans had lined these stones up by the thousands of Karnak and not without knowing what they were doing. They couldn't record their language. It's all in pre, late prehistory, but they could 
uh, intentionally putting these things in with intention. When we, when we first, yeah, go ahead. Do you think that men did that work of lifting those stones? You don't think there was UFO and help or anything? There, we got to uh, Sligo in Ireland, and there's a big uh, ancient graveyard there outside town with many, many, many stone circles. I don't know, ten of them, I don't know, there's a lot of stone circles. And uh, we're standing around looking at these stone circles, and Reynaud puts his coat on one of the stones and says, Okay, we're going to count the stones. So he started counting the stones one, two, three, and he's just walking around. And they've been, the mathematics we've been using has just been like the old timers, one at a time. And we count them. And there's 37 stones. And then we count another stone circle, puts a coat on a stone and goes around. It's either going to be, he says, it's either going to be 38, 37, 39. It's going to be one of those numbers. And it was in every case. And was that the exact latitude of the sites or? That's the latitudes of the Azores Islands. They were considered the western home of the sun god for 800 years because they couldn't go further west against the president. Okay. So, you see this stuff when you travel. I mean, tourists are going through that Sligo graveyard, ancient megalithic site every day now. And they don't know what they're doing because they, they don't count. There's no publication out there that says, hey, we should count these stones. There's going to be 38 stones there. That's the central Azores. That's where Pico is. That's where this big volcano sticks up in the ocean. You can see it there 60 miles away. The little harbor there, which has been there for thousands of years, has a pyramid in it, which the Portuguese archaeologist says its origins unknown. So, you know, it's um, you just have to put together a lot of pieces because we're dealing with stuff way back in the past, and uh, there's nothing. It's it's not put together. You have to put together this stuff yourself, and you you can with enough traveling around, looking at enough sites. It's, it's, it's a long way in the past. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting and it's a good job. But it's, that's what we did our traveling tourists. We, we just went to uh, megalithic sites all over Europe from up in the York, uh, uh, the uh, Shetlands and Orkneys, on down south all the way to Gibraltar. I haven't been down to Lixis, one of my friends is down there. And did you? He travels around by himself. He's a little Jewish guy. He got attacked. So he, he, you know, and he got attacked in Cusco. It's the only place that he's been attacked. But generally, I'm with my friends, and I'm kind of a good guy. Like, generally, we're in places where the food's good and the people are friendly, and we can stay in youth hostels and meet professors that are traveling around on the cheap. And yeah, it's fun. Do, do you think that the Shetley, Shetland Islands and the Ornkey Islands, did you think that there was a Knights Templar presence there or was it more Norse? What was your impression of that? Uh, Templars are later. Yeah, there's Norse stuff all over the place, but uh, we're not looking for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they made the whole town there. Uh, the, the cities in those places were named, had Norse names. So they were Norse territories. They were owned by the North. But but you're looking for stuff that's way older 
And how old are those monuments? And you know, the megaliths, the stone oh, circles. The megalithic monuments in Europe. Yeah. They're um, about 3,000 BC, which is uh, 5,000 years ago. 4,000 BC. Uh, well, they crossed the ocean about 2,500. They're about 3,000 BC, about 5,000 years ago. They're about uh -huh. 3,000 BC. Yeah. There, there are major excavations going on over there now. We talked about it the last time we, we, we did the past. So I probably shouldn't do it again. But yeah. And they, so they were trying to find their way to the West and they knew there were islands out there. And so they, and in the old days, there were huge herds of walrus and stuff up there. And they probably harvested the tusks and so on and ate them. You know, like humans do. So they lived there so long, maybe the walrus are gone about 2000 BC, I don't know. But they were known to have been there. Uh, Be back maybe after people and say, well, that's the top of it. And, and when I was there, there were lots of seals offshore and lots of seabirds and stuff. Beautiful place to go. It's dangerous to drive because they don't put lines down the middle of the roads. The roads are only one lane wide and you're passing big ships going past. No trees. It's an interesting place. I was kind of scared to run to drive there. But I drove on uh, Sand Day Island, which is a little more northern island. That was uh, no traffic at all. No problem. I mean, I was lucky to get a car, but it was wonderful. And I got a six room hotel and then a bum to ride on. There was only one car that I could build. And they managed to get me on top, in there on top of that electronic equipment. So you get out to this little, go about six miles to a little six room hotel, or eight room hotel or something. Nice little guy. I said, Where can I rent it? Bicycle trail, and I run this person. He said, Well, there aren't any, you don't want that anyway. Go down the end of the dock there and get a car. Look down the dock, this is going through, and I look down there, and there's a guy in orange coveralls. She says, Yeah, him, talk to him. I go down there, and I ask the guy, Ah, the guy in the hotel says, Do you have a car down here? He says, Yeah, take that one. And look at this little beater next to me, you know, there's two of them. He points at one of them, and he says, Take that one. I said, What? And he says, Yeah. Just take that one. The key's in it. I said, really? He says, yeah, just never take the key out. It's never been out. And so I sit in and I look at it and I sing the key a little bit and they smoke half a cap full of gas. I said, well, you got a gas station or something? I said, replace the gas I use? He says, no, you'll never, you, won't, you can't put that many miles on a car. Don't worry about it. There's no gas. Just use it. <laughs> put it and bring it back. And when you're done, and I said, don't you want to know my name and everything? He says, or credit card or anything? He says, no, you look honest to me. He says, go ahead and take it. And so, <laughs> but, but it says, when you're done, just park it here where it is and give 20 bucks, you give, a, give 20 bucks to the hotel manager. That's what it's like as a tourist. And that was Shetlands or Ornkeys? Or, or that's the Ornkey Island. There was no tourists there. You know, wow. There were uh, megalithic tombs washing into the ocean. Wow. Literally, this great big, the great big, uh, they're made out of flat stones and there's ones across the top and ones on the side. And some of them are right on the beach. Some of them are, there's nothing left. Some of them are just falling apart. They're all along the shore. Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff sticking up out of the ground everywhere. 
there's one of them that's been rebuilt and made into a monument. And and did the Irish have a presence there? Back on a different island. Is there what? Was did the Irish have a presence there? That's a complicated question. A lot of the Irish uh, were immigrants from Scotland. Okay. And so there were Celts. And so what are you what are you talking about? I mean, the Orkneys are off of northern Scotland and uh, yeah, they're populated with uh, people from uh, that are part of Scotland today. And they live a harsh life, always have the outdoors. There's no trees, wind blows, it's cold. And so they, um, they handled the uh, Hudson Bay Company of Canada, found that that was the best recruiting ground in the world for people that would serve, uh, serve as uh, employees for the Hudson Bay Company. And then they recruited people there for many years for that portion because they could stand the cold. Did you did you notice any like line of sight at the top of hills that you could communicate with the other islands or any mounds on the top of hills or or nothing like that? The islands are bare and very very. You have to take the ferries to miles apart. Uh, you really can't, and they're not high. You don't see. Distance. I see, I see. Um, it's a wonderful place to travel. It's interesting to have that. It's one of my favorite places. Thank you for sharing it with us. It sounds very cool. So tell us about Crete and uh, the adventures on the island there. Um, well, there are a lot of tourists in Crete, of course. And uh, uh, we were there in the spring. Because we usually travel in April and May, because Europeans go on vacation, they get out of Paris where it's too hot and travel everywhere. Well, and all these other European cities. So we're traveling in the spring before those vacations, before the European tourists get there, and before American tourists come in the summer. And so, you know, rental cars are available. There's always rooms you don't have to book ahead. And so in Crete in April, the April, May, April, when we there's bushes along the sides of the roads that um, are about six feet high, run for miles and miles. And they're all they, uh, flowers were spectacular at that season. So it was wonderful traveling. The roads are used to be terrible, but the EU has put in uh, wonderful big roads in Crete. So it's like going to Michigan. It's got beautiful roads and nobody's there anymore. It's uh, you can drive all over very easily. It's a very easy place to be a tourist um, in that kind of season. I haven't been there other seasons, but so I don't know. All right. <clears throat> and now there's people, tourists at the tourist sites like Viceroy and Maui, and, but there weren't crowds. And it was wonderful because I, it, it, again, I found confirmations of treaties that we were working on. There's a foundation stone. Where the archaeologists were working, one of the great big stones where the palace had been that was washed out by the four 19 meter tsunamis that came from the eruption of uh, Santorini. And so uh, they just got foundation stones of doing 
huge amounts of work. They have great big plastic, you know, covered coverings over the archaeologic digs that they're doing. One of these foundation stones had a carving of a sailboat at anchor. And the same carving, literally the same carving, the same size is on an oxide ingot that was pulled out of some 200 feet underwater off the Illigoon. So basically, it tells me that that Michigan copper was the, the Minoans were known to be the dealers of. Copper in the Mediterranean, they were selling these 60 pound ingots of copper and became a wealthy civilization. Europe's first big civilization was on Crete and it was funded by the sale of copper, and that copper is from Michigan. And it was, and this particular ingot on the Ulu Berlin uh, was, uh, went through the harbor of Malaga because it uh, had a a lot of them have these little carvings snapped into them, and uh, that one is also duplicated in Maya. That'd be interesting. Again, all those uh, markings on the ingots, which can be seen in the museum there, and, uh, they're, they were all studied in great detail and examples of them in the museum there, and both uh, old, ancient, which is ancient, Halifarnassus. Um, they've got them all in the museum. You don't see them on there. You, you see some. To tell us, didn't you see pottery that was just scattered all over the beach? But the rule was you can't take one piece of that away, obviously. Yeah, unless you want to spend a little while in a Turkish prison. I think that's uh, something people understand. <laughs> um, the tsunamis knocked down the big palaces that were all on the North Shore of Crete. And one of my friends is going over there soon. I'm going to show him the map, uh, which is uh, where I'm going to show him the site that he should go to. On the very eastern tip of Crete, there are two things. If you take the southern road, you get down to where the water is so shallow for miles. I mean, it's just amazing. It's, shallow. it's a couple inches deep for a guy. As far as you can see, the water must be wonderfully warm for swimming which we didn't do, we were busy doing our thing. When it gets salty and try to deal with it, maybe we should have gone in the water, but I think that the swimming would be wonderful down to the south. And there was, there, uh, Minoan, uh, uh, I don't know if there's ruins, but at least the, the, there was a presence there and that was discussed in the materials. And you could see some things, but uh, not good. But, if you take the road to the north, it ends up at a area where the roads kind of wander around behind the beach, around some trees, and then at the north end of the beach is a restaurant. Everybody's sitting out, it's over the water. You can you look down the beach, and here's all these people sitting in this restaurant. And you go down the beach, which is a little to the south, there's a no one palace washing in the water. Wow. Because the tsunamis that came in there just destroyed these palaces, right? There's also on the map, the reason why you go to this place a little south of this restaurant is that there's uh, other ruins there, which are uh, where the, the 
like you say, the shards, the shards of the pottery are just you're walking on dozens of them. I mean, it's just paved with shards, and it's Hellenistic. It's later, okay. But if you're down on the beach, you can see these stone steps going down into the water that have stones on them because the water has washed the stones up on so the water has washed the stones up on these stairs on a this staircase i mean but if if i had brushed away the stones i could have taken a picture of the stone staircases backing up into the in dock into a cliff of dirt you know like objects and rocks going to pottery so right in front of me there was a, a, a red dish about eight inches down there's a pottery dish about like so a red pottery that had just come out of this cliff face it's sitting there on the beach yeah wow and if i had picked that up you know they'd say oh you're stealing this from crete you know you can't i didn't even touch it i didn't touch it i took a picture of it i posted it in my library but at any rate the whole civilization, all these four-story palaces were destroyed, and uh, all the parts are, of course, laying there on the ground, and now the ocean is washing it back, taking it back. And it's, it's, um, I'm, I'm going to suggest she go there and see what there might be these days, see if she can find that stone staircase. And so so how, how far do the Minoans go back living on Crete? Uh, you're asking me something like, oh, uh, well, I do a little bit, because there have been studies um, of sailing, early sailing in the uh, Mediterranean, because they didn't think, <laughs> excuse me, they didn't think people would know how to sail. <laughs> so, but they found uh, charge, that is, uh, chip stone. Not pottery, but stone, chip stone, um, which they dated in this research article I read to 40,000 BC. So they think that early man has been on these islands in the Mediterranean, since for very long. Now, they didn't become wealthy until who knows when. I mean, they were trading. Uh, the Minoan civilization under this site you know, before 3000 BC. Well, we don't know how early, but they came, became very wealthy by selling all this copper to the Egyptians and to the Sardinians. And so, and so the volcano Thera happened in about 1650 BC, right? Yeah. And then the Mycenaeans and the other groups took over. Crete that kind of wiped out the Minoan um, sailors. What happened to those sailors that were still, you know, had their knowledge and alive? Uh, I don't know. The trade of uh, copper evaporated was over. You know, um, the ships. I don't think they had a fleet anymore. The, the tsunamis would have wiped that off. You can see the way uh, boats are moored in Crete, they put an anchor out off the bow and take a line to shore. And the boats are just laying there off the beach. It's Akros, they were there just like that. 
Now you can go down to, and that's what they did all along the coast of Crete. So when the tsunamis came, the fleet was just eliminated. Now there are down by uh, on the, in toward Western Crete. There's some. Uh, there's a big a big harbor. It's beautiful, and uh, Minoan ruins there. Uh, maybe some boats made it through the. They say the Mycenaean fleet was protected by the harbors of the inn and the other side of the Peloponnesus and things. And so uh, they weren't destroyed. They came in and took things over. Um, but part of the, <clears throat> the story is not just the pirate, not just the waves, but the, and they got it, these huge tsunami, but the pyroclastic flows, which uh, come out of a volcano and travel up and across the water high temperatures to very high speeds. And they say those put everything that survived the tsunamis to death by cooking. Uh, even Christos, even Christos, which is on the other side of the mountains. That was destroyed at the same time. I mean, that's how bad the things were, right? The civilization was just absolutely wiped out. And so some of those Minoans perhaps became the Phoenicians later. Is that possible? Or the sea people that they were traveling? Became part of the what? Well, some of those Minoans with the seafaring knowledge that, you know, you have the Phoenicians, you have the sea people, you know, did, did some of that perhaps join with those groups, the Minoan traders? Well, they tried to, you know, wherever you make a big profit by trading, it becomes a secret. And so uh, a lot of these Phoenicians and so on were known not to have told. In fact, the Phoenician went to Britain and sank his ship because he was being followed. You know? so he was rewarded hugely in, in, in uh, Carthage because he had sunk his ship rather than reveal where he was going. Um, these are trade secrets. And, uh, Difficult to know who learned what from who when. Um, so uh, it's just not an easy thing to trace. Um, the Minoan civilization, uh, Minoan stuff is found all you know, through Greece. I've been through the museum in Greece not too long ago. Uh, and uh, the museums at Mycenae. Uh, or Manoa stuff. So it was like the, the grandfather civilization, uh, artwork uh, is clearly uh, Manoa on, on this stuff. And so the Minoans had this can they for sure say that it was a female-centered civilization, or was it perhaps female and male uh, run? Or, I mean, these women with bare-breasted chests kind of walking around, is, was it a female-centered society? Uh, yeah, they think so, that the women had, a, had a powerful roles in society. The same with the beaker people. Uh, yeah. Same with the beaker people who were the Adena, uh, the, the bell beakers, the Adena is that, yeah. Yeah, it's too bad we don't have the same tradition. I mean, 
the breasts are a beautiful feature of the women. It's too bad they can't exhibit them more. You know, some societies do and some don't, unfortunately. Um, did you ask any of those museums to do any testing on any artifacts or anything? They wouldn't allow that, would they? Would allow what now, Chris? To do any type of testing on these artifacts that they have. They just don't allow that. They don't want to prove that any of that copper's from Michigan, right? Uh, well, um, I showed you uh, last time we talked this little pennant that was dredged out of the Ohio River. And um, I knew that it's Minoan, and so, uh, and then I went through all the museums in Crete, there's three main cities, and museum in each one. The archaeologists are all women about 30 years old, 35 years old. And uh, they've been trained as to what's Minoan and what isn't, and they knew, and they looked at it, and it was Minoan, no question. Uh, because what I took were photos. I knew I couldn't bring it back out of the country because it can be found by all the metal detectors at the airports. At any rate, so <clears throat> uh, I took photos and I showed them pictures and these women all, oh yeah, oh yeah, beautiful, whatever. They knew what they were looking at. And I did too by the time I saw more than one work because they did very, very fine gold work and very fine art. Just, uh, it's very high quality. And what you see, I bought similar sorts of things in the tourist shops and it's a totally different uh, ability and skill used in making them. So I uh, enjoyed showing it, but when finally, when, when, when Oracle went at the museum, this gal says, well, where did you get this thing? And pushed me real hard as I was leaving. And I said, it, it was dredged out of the Ohio River. And the gal says, no, it wasn't. <laughs> you knew no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's fun. Uh, the problem was the major museum in Iraqulun was, uh, was being uh, remodeled at the time. And so... <laughs> Uh, now I think you'd have, if you went to Crete, you for sure want to go to the museum because uh, all I saw was the, some of the best stuff they put down there in the basement, so that was fine. You know, not as good as what you see now. Okay, let's jump around. What is, when I looked at your pictures on the wall, you had some, one of the Egyptian pyramid sites that had the construction so, the stones were so compacted and what was your, was it theory or fact that you said that some of those pyramids were, is, are you talking about an ancient concrete or are you talking about, what was your kind of alternative theory that's not accepted by mainstream on those pyramids? Um, well, I'm not sure again about your question. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, it isn't, Accepted these days, it isn't popularly popularly understood by the public. But there's, um, I think it's so well documented. There's a French scientist, and I don't have the book in front of me. Maybe if I know you wanted to bring this up, I would pull it out of the library. There's a French scientist who's a um, done a, done a book 
And uh, actually, it's one book, and I thought for three of them, I thought, well, I, it was only ten dollars. I thought, geez, you know, I better get everything this way. He's a, 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 a rock scientist. Um, his book is so interesting and so good. And I thought I'll get all his books. Well, it turned out each book had different covers, but it was all the same book on the inside. <laughs> it was one book. Uh, Hate when that happens. <laughs> French guy, French scientist, and uh, you know he has shown. Well, he actually made a number of jugs. It started out with some stone heads made of, uh, of uh, granite. And he showed, he made them because he's been studying rock science. He's a specialist in concrete. In fact, his CV, he's a, he's a, on his CV, he runs about three pages. He's a consultant to all the major concrete companies in the world. Amazing, guy's amazing. And um, he had these stone heads and he showed them to Egyptologists. And they all said, yeah, we recognize those heads. I, I, when they were called, you know, they, 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 they told him just what quarry they came from and when they were called from the whole deal. And he said, well, I made it in my basement. And, and, and they, well, <laughs> you know, it turns out that the ancients, way back in the dynasties had uh, understood stone technology better than they did today. And they were able to, uh, to do things that we still do not do. And uh, obviously we can do it now because this guy can do it. I mean, you know. But uh, it wasn't for a long way. Long, and, uh, basically, I, I read his book in great detail and, and I could see what he did in his book as he described each of the pyramids in Egypt and how they're different from one another at different dates and the designs are different and they're manufactured a little different way and how they go from this type of pyramid to this type to this type to this type and these ones, these in the Red Temple, it bleeds a little and that's because the, the chemicals are coming out. You could just follow the book through these temples, through these pyramids. And um, basically uh, his thesis, which I think he's proven, and walked around the Khufu, big Khufu pyramid, and just by the chance I was thinking, that the reason, okay, that these, <clears throat> that the blocks are mostly limestone blocks, and they're made from material that were dug up and carried up a ramp in buckets. And they were manufactured. That's why they fit so well to each other. I mean, they're very tight on most sides. So like you're building a block, you put, you have to put a wooden wall on one or two sides of the block, right? The rest of it fits. Because you're just pouring in a hole that 
has wood on one or two sides. Uh, that's how the pyramid was built. And they knew how to harden the various chemicals, the salts, natron, the salt, so on. And they knew how to make these things. But the problem was that they learned over time and then they ran out of some of the stuff that was being used. So um, the actual uh, manufacture of the blocks at the different uh, at the different pyramids are different. Yeah. Eventually, they ran out of everything, and they just started making a lot of bricks again. You know, it's um, there's a whole sequence to the development of these pyramids, and the the way they're designed and the way they're built. Yeah, this book shows how it was done. And Wonderful. It's complete sense. So um, I'd say that, uh, and he can replicate these things. So uh, it makes a lot of sense in many ways, but in terms of manpower, in terms of where the, 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 the stuff was dug up because it was holding the ground, you know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense uh, in, in Look at <laughs> the other theories and make a break. This guy is uh, nailed it. Do, does, do you see similarities to the pyramids in South America? Any of them that you went to there? or uh, There are pyramids in Mauritius and everywhere. Yeah, Indonesia. There's pyramids all over the world, and nobody knows. No one knows. Uh, has, a, has, a, has, a, has a good explanation because they go back. In Egypt, they're not necessarily that old. They're only three thousand BC, but uh, maybe there was a worldwide culture that spread all over the world that quickly. Maybe. But then you got this one's made out of basalt down in Indonesia, the basalt monument. You know, it's a pyramid inside a hill, enormous. Padang, Upadang, or what's the name? So, um, you know, there's plenty of people that say that there was extraterrestrial influence in the design of these things. I believe it. I know that there's been. Uh, uh, extraterrestrial civilizations here a number of times they've come and gone. And we have records, stone records from several here too. I do. And the ones down in Peru and the ones in Mexico. Yeah. So <laughs> it's uh, maybe they had influence. Or maybe they just got around to that or they just these ideas. Why the construction of the pyramids? I don't know. My friend thinks they were energy building, energy, energy factories, you know, making electricity off of big grid. It's it's uh, understudied. And my friend in Bosnia uh, has a huge pyramid. It's actually the world's biggest. It's the blocks are laid on top of one another. And, Fashion that makes it makes them look like they're man-made, and they're measuring the uh, energy beams coming out of the top of this pyramid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Jay, did you have a story with Zahi Hawass, uh, the Egyptian uh, head of antiquities? Yeah, he's busy giving tours to uh, university groups uh, this week. I mean, I've got a brochure. You can take a tour in Hawass, I'll show you around. Been exactly. story, uh, kind of a personal story. I've never met him. But uh, <clears throat> one of my friends here in the neighborhood where I live in here now in Anna, her husband was uh, the number two guy in the US National Park Service uh, doing a tour of Egypt and Hawass was entertaining him a little. I had him for dinner. And she said around the dinner table, Hawass offered to said, would you like to buy some antiquities? So Hawass is selling Egyptian antiquities on the side, on the side. So my respect for the guy is not that high. Yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't take one of his tours. Yeah. It's also been difficult for people who want to do studies over there with the confidential and realize he's uh, very possessive about what can and can't be done by people coming in. It it must I think it, this guy's got a pretty much a mixed bag, you know. He was out of power for a while now. He's back into it again, I guess. He, he maybe has done some good stuff. They've got a, a new, new museum in Cairo that's apparently spectacular. I haven't been in it, but I know that the ship that's remarkable up by that it's found and put together, you know, out of the boards uh, next to the big pyramid there at Kufa. Uh, that big ship has been put into a shipping container with about 40 tires under it. And the whole thing's been moved down in the center of Cairo into the new museum. I just saw on the internet a picture of the thing being moved. They got a painting of the ship along the side of the container. It's spectacular. Wow. I mean, I've never seen so many tires on a truck as they built for this, uh, to move this ship. It's a, it's a, it's quite a big ship. It's a, if you're going to Egypt, it's maybe the number one thing to see in my opinion. It wouldn't ship. Well, thank you for that. He he's definitely restricted access below the Sphinx, right? I mean, some of this stuff is not accessible to people. Um, not acceptable. What are you talking about? Accessible. Um, accessible. What's not accessible? I think below the Sphinx, there was definitely some stuff down there, and below. Oh. Uh, the Sphinx has never been opened up. Yeah, they say with confidential and radar, the chambers under there and so on and so on. But, you know, it's not been opened. It's not known if there's anything there to open. For a while, um, they weren't letting people in to see the Saqqara tomb where they buried the bulls, supposedly, and the great big uh, sarcophagi that are managed, that are got absolutely perfectly square edges and stuff been studied by Dunn, my friend Dunn, took mm -hmm. his down there. Unbelievable. Uh, they used some kind of fancy machines to make those things. And how they got them in there, it's just unknown. And for a long time, people weren't allowed down in there. They were, and then they weren't. They didn't get in there now, and then, oh. You know, <laughs> one of the girls at AAPS married an Egyptian at one point, and uh, her children were playing in the underground under the pyramids and stuff. And there's big steel gates that keep them out now. So yeah. And Hawass will tell you, oh, there's no tunnels. She says, yeah, but my kids are playing in them. 
Well, he is yeah, definitely say that you to go to the underworld, you got to go through these tunnels and down the rivers that are underwater, under the in the tunnels. Yeah, it's it's a way to go to the underworld. Those are big ones. Go to the underworld. Well, Zahi Hawass is. We don't know over there yet. He 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 definitely has had control of that, you know, antiquities trade well before Mubarak and the other people in charge and. Um, I know he did have that little break and then got back. The point is, is that any documentary that you ever see on Egypt, pretty much that I've seen, he is the guy interviewed and he is the guy right there as the cave is opened, um, which is just, uh, you know, he's got a major power and control over that country's antiquities. Um, this, yeah, yeah. Somebody's staying in control. He's not, I don't know. People in power, you know, they develop people around him, they support them, whatever. I don't know how he maintains himself, you know. So I don't I don't know the guy. I've never met him. I don't well, the story with Sam, our mutual friend of the Bosnian pyramids, is that you know, Zahi Owas declared his pyramids in Bosnia fake without ever even going there. Mm -hmm. Not unusual, is it? No, not unusual at all. And then uh, an Egyptian archaeologist went down there and wrote a paper saying that the pyramids were real. He then came back to Egypt to be fired. Um, that doesn't sound unusual either, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're going to speak out, you better be retired like me. <laughs> Seriously. Um, tell us about a paper that you wrote about the Newberry tablets. What did they find in Newberry, Michigan? And was that a Minoan syllabary that we're on some of those artifacts? Newberry tablet is named for a mound. And the tablet has the Lord's Prayer in a very ancient um, version of Hebrew. I've got a copy of it. So it made out of clay, you know. When it's standing up, I didn't know if the symbols were similar to the Faistos disc, which I also have a clay copy of that. Oh, um, this disc, yeah, that's Minoan, and uh, uh, yeah, I have it too. And I've studied it, and when I studied it, I didn't like his interpretation. Um, it's uh, until or unless uh, more of those uh, symbols become found, we won't be able to deal with it. We're going to search it. There's a lot of uh, viable uh, uh, guesses at what it means. What, what but, but you thought those Newberry tablets were more Hebrew in their script than Lydia? script. They're known they can read them. Very good. Um, okay, and so the beakers, you know, the Adena, which you say they had the, um, you know, the uh, round square jaw, um, and then the big hand at Copper Harbor in Michigan that you put your big hand up there, and the hand was quite a bit bigger, two inches bigger. So you think these people were tall? Is that the thinking? We were standing on an old beach right on the sand next to an outcropping of rock that went up about 10 feet. 
And I'm standing there next to Pine Tree, and my friend Tom Teal was standing there with me. He says, hey, Jake, look on that branch. <laughs> I moved the branch. There's a hand on the wall. I put my hand up there, and it's the, the, the hand was bigger than mine, so I took a picture of my hand next to this thing. And um, it wasn't a deep petroglyph. But it was enough that the moss was growing differently in it and outside it. So it was a clear image. And very clear. It's in my book, and I think other people have used it. There's a lot of talk about giants. And um, I think this is a an artifact <coughs> that showed that there were some very big people in uh, among the crew of that boat that was loading copper to giants or bigger people giants i don't know i think they were bigger people but it was in the tombs of terra dentro down in colombia they the uh, tourists in order to get tourists in and out of some of these tombs on the mountaintops down there which are unesco world heritage sites they build additional steps in between the steps because the steps are too big to get yourself up and down. And not only that, they were hollowed out on the inside. They were dug out. These things are maybe 20, 20 feet squared on the inside, all painted up with bigger people patterns on it, triangles. So, <clears throat> and the stairs, they had to take all that material out, digging it up with. Uh, Easy trouble. I can't tough uh, turf or tough tufa, whatever it is. It's it's so, relatively soft, but it's twenty feet square, and a lot of digging and a lot of dirt to carry out in baskets or whatever to make these tombs. And um, they made a lot of other tombs that were like European style with slabs of rock and so on. But these underground apogeal uh, staircases coming up. The stairs, you had to really, the ones that didn't have the little stair helper stairs added were very hard to get in and out of because they're, you know, like a yard apart. I mean, how do you do that? You know, I, I know we're tired. You have to hike a lot to get up to these places. You know, a couple of months and do it early in the morning when it's still cool and so on. But uh, you know, handy two degrees south and hot. But uh, I have photos of some of these tombs where they build little steps in between the steps, which make it a normal size step for people. There's still big steps that you, you can do it, you know, without having to get on your hands and knees and elbows and crawling out. So oh. in the books down there, the one by Wilkins on South America, Talks about giants. There's a lot of reference to giants in that. And of course, the most of the giant stuff comes from Jay. Jay. The left was 
when when it, when Zoom uh, decided to terminate us there, um, I was saying that a friend who was going through it had a minder with him was down to find something to phase during this Smithsonian. So I had one of these giant skeletons hanging in a room or in a room. I don't know if it was hanging or whatever. He said he saw the giant skeleton in the room and he said, wow. Said to the guy that was with him, hey, look at that. That's that's terrific. That's amazing. And the guy says, Yeah, we're not supposed to be down here and hustling them out of there real quick. So, you know, they've got the stuff that just uh, made it public. I wonder how big it was. Yeah, I don't know. They bought some. They they bought some for there's one that they recorded that they bought for 500 bucks. It was a big one. I don't know. You know, they number of them found in nine. So um People weren't eating a lot of manufactured food, right? With natural food and so on, I think that there was large people. And uh, there's also, there's a whole race of larger people in Siberia that have been found in the cave and so on. That's another whole other subject. But at any rate, this, uh, uh, I think that the uh, leadership of some of these societies in the Midwest and so on were led by big people. But I think that it's the leaders of the non-village were big. And they were, <clears throat> um, they had, they were obviously bigger, more capable, stronger, or whatever, and they made the leadership. And so a number of societies had leadership of these large people. Interesting. Uh, Jim Shears told me about one of the Indian groups that was led by a, a white, a grandmother, a white-haired giant. Um, all right, so at 1200 BC, there was a worldwide catastrophe that ended the Bronze Age, and it was the comet Enki, is that right? We think so. Mm -hmm. And it was noisy, um, and uh, were there other impacts that, uh, <laughs> that, that come to mind that were a big deal? Well, when you study the history of impact, impact growth and impact, um, it's a complicated history in a lot of books, and we read a bunch of them. If you look at our book, uh, Rocks and Rose, there's a couple of chapters on all this, and so I don't remember it well. But there's a there's a um, an event of 500 BC, and there's a band of 1250 BC. We think the 1251 was recorded on a man here in France. Uh, it's all in our book. It's a it's quite a complicated study, and we had a guy named Ed Grandin from NASA, who was an expert in this stuff, gave us a talk at one point. Um, okay. what, so we've researched this some, and, and the, the sum of it was, uh, to me, was that, that, 20, that uh, the most important thing to me was this explanation of the end of the Bronze Age of 1198 BC. There was a 50 year or 100 year event that was uh, thought to coincide with the uh, breakup of energy. We still see in the fall a little energy. They think it's just all that's left circulating around up there, but they came down over this period. And so these Walmart uh, uh, recorded it in these figurines that they called. And was it a coincidence that that was the end of the Bronze Age and the start of the Iron Age? Just the timing of that was kind of a coincidence, perhaps? Um, 
Well, they overlap. I mean, bronze tools are still used later and they're still made later. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, the Iron Age of technically, officially, the, the Iron Age is follows the Bronze Age, you know, and okay. hundreds of years later. All right. Well, Jay, there were, there were meteorites falling. You know, it's a it's a not a complete black and white dividing line because um, meteorites were found on the desert. You can still find them easily in the desert. They're black objects sitting on a white burning sand. You know, so <clears throat> they pick them up, and that's what some of the swords were made from in the early days, uh, from fancy steels and fancy nickel meteorites and so on that were from space. So. There were some very hard, special steels, and there was romance about all these swords, you know. And some of them are meteor, meteoritic. Jay, will you explain to us the smelting, the melting process that went on down in Louisiana? There, Poverty Point, Cedarland, Claiborne. Just explain the process. The copper chunks come down the Mississippi in the summer months. They stop there. What happens then to get it into the ingots? The copper's pretty rough when it's mined. And uh, <clears throat> they had a short season before it got cold. Uh, they had to produce their own wood for the fire mining. So they had people cutting timber. They had people growing food. Food areas, food growing areas. Uh, the weather would change and be dramatic, and, and uh, they have found a wrecked ship, but they know that Lake Superior is horrendous. The, the boat that takes people out to the national park there now only runs for like two months a year because the roughness of the water. Four ships, got, you know, four ships got broken up and drowned all the people in it. Um, so it's a short season, and I think that the copper was just taken, was loaded into, they stored it in a hole hole, or a hole that's about the size of the ship, but they had holes where they just stored the stuff. Ship comes in, they load the ship, just like they did the sandalwood in the water to ship to Asia for <laughs> sandalwood. So, so, um, the uh, important thing here that bugs that is to, to, to get across is the difference between uh, melting and smelting. It's important because <clears throat> smelting is a higher temperature process where you take an ore of copper, which could be can be yellow, can be green, or and you have to melt it at high temperature and get the copper out. That's called smelting. And you get a lot of byproducts in that copper. But if you just melt over wood piles, melt copper, it will form ingots which don't have these uh, impurities in it. And that's the difference between Michigan copper and copper in the Middle East, where coppers are smelted from ores. And there are big areas in the Sinai and so on, and some pictures are amazing of the colors of the ground. It's 
spectacular admirer. <laughs> of course, I could have said that before. At any rate, there was high temperature smelted into copper. And they got that nice copper out of it. You know, and I have an artifact that is quite sure that it came from that kind of fossil. But it's uh, sort of an uh, origin of this uh, street, I think. Uh, at any rate, Michigan copper was only melted, not smelted, because you didn't have that. It doesn't have much impurities now in Russia. In the process of crystallization in the lava bed, when the copper was formed in Michigan, some silver was found, crystallized in little lumps in there. Not all mixed up in the copper, but in lumps, because each atom attracts another atom in there. Certainly, not all mines, not all mines, but some of the mines, the miners knew it was quite valuable and they took a little copper mine, cut out uh, hunks of silver and go home and load copper for the silver. <coughs> some of the mines had silver, some of them didn't. Now, that's one thing, one thing that's unique about Michigan copper. If you find silver, find silver in it, you know it's uh, Michigan copper. So there's a story uh, down in Cornwall of a farmer that found a uh, arrowhead. And he sent it down by the copper mines down there. Anyway, he wanted to know about the antiquity of it as a farmer. He sends it in through the British Museum for analysis of what have I got here? And they said, what you got is Michigan copper. Now, in order for them to say that, they must have found silver in it. Copper, a silver nugget. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't know how to say that because there was plenty of copper. Well, <clears throat> you know, you accumulate all these little bits and stories and it's funny, you don't get ones that prove your point wrong. I don't know. I can't prove I did anything. I've been working on this 25 years. How can I be? How can there not be errors in my work? I don't know. I don't know. But when I find new things, like this little story in Cornwall, it makes sense to me. And uh, somewhere, you know, you can't be right. But I, 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 I so many of the stories support one another and uh, make this Michigan copper story uh, a real story that I think is valuable. And, and, you know, I enjoyed working with you to develop a new movie script on the subject. Thank you, Jay. It's a lot of fun talking about it and listening and learning and sharing, you know, your 30 years of work with the world. And, you know, it's just crazy that more people don't love this stuff. And, you know, they have families and they're busy and they got to work. And but I think at our core, we love this. I think I think everybody, humans love history. They love this stuff. We just got to. I want to teach it to that film because, you know, I mean, I've got a book and it sells to some people. Some people say it's just fabulous and so on. But it only goes to a few people and it's cheap. And I don't go on Facebook and promote it and stuff. You know, uh, well, I, th these podcasts and the TV and the film, that's, you know, that's the presence. So, so 
<clears throat> but a film would be good because, you know, one of my favorite places to travel is the French coast, the northern French coast, which is west of Morlaix. <clears throat> and if you get the detailed map, you'll see some things on there on the map that uh, you normally wouldn't see just driving the coastal. The coastal is spectacular. Run through these little towns, little two-lane roads running around between the rocks and the high tides and the low tides and the little towns and castles. Oh God, it's just spectacular. It's a wonderful place to travel. All right, and the, the, the people are nice and so on. So, you know, a lot of times, but I'm traveling with my friend who's Dutch and so he can speak French and make it easy for us. But uh, at any rate, there's about a dozen standing men here in the farm fields that are about <laughs> enormous stone. I mean, the French, nobody has any idea what they're doing standing there. Nobody. And uh, nobody's looking at them either. I mean, you've got to go up these little dirt roads around the farm fields. And, oh, there's another one. Or there's one laying down. Or there's two, one halfway down. You know, they're there. Most of them stand. And at the foot of them, there are petroglyphs on the stones in the ground, which I scraped a little dirt away. And there was a boat shape in the stone that wasn't even in the recording of that. Of these mm. And then another one, here's this uh, flint chip off of making it, uh, which was this flint scraper. You know, I mean, right in the, right in the farm field. I mean, nobody's up there looking. This is really been picked up. What are they aligned to? The sunset or the solstices or? Not that I can tell. There are carvings on some of them. Some of them are shaped. They're very interesting. They're, most of the pictures of most of them are in the Rocks and Rose book in color. But, uh, <clears throat> which is on Amazon, if anybody wants to see them. But I, that's where I want to start. That's where I've started the movie story. The grandfather explaining to the child what these are. That these are uh, memorializing and recording the adventures of our people in previous generations. Your grandfather was lost on one of these uh, voyages to the north. These are all memorializing our sailing adventures to the north to find where the sun god is and where it goes on the other side of the earth. What is on the backside of the earth? We're trying to find our way. And they know if they sail north, they go to the great through the between Ireland and Britain, and then they go up to the Faroe Islands, and then they go across, you know, the Orkneys, which where they established colonies, and people, a lot of people living up there. And then it was the Orkneys, uh, from the Orkneys to the Faroes, and then from the Faroes to Iceland. And then if they found it, uh, you know, when they found Iceland, it must have been a big excitement. You know, that's maybe one of those stones. We don't know. But they're all looking over the ocean on the northwest tip of France. It's, uh, it's just about as far as they can go to the north. And they've built these huge monuments standing there. Yeah, they're amazing. You know. did, did, did you notice, or is there any legend of any paint on them, or did you ever see any white paint on any of them? Uh, they're um, 
from 3000 BC. So they're 5,000 years old. There's no paint on them anymore. Unlike maybe something that's been preserved in Egypt somewhere underground. But these are, there's nothing. There's some carvings on some of them. There's a, <laughs> one of them has a, uh, Meteorite or comet carved in it, which we thought was probably dated to the 1200 BC comet event. How, how many feet would these stones be underneath the ground? In their month. Enough that they're, uh, there's only, well, a couple of them are laying down, lying down. I guess you could, uh, by measuring the ones that are lying down, you find out. I think they're probably about five feet down. That's about, you know, the ones that are laying on the ground, if you could tell where they were at ground level before. Uh, trying to do that. I mean, they're, they're sticking in the ground long enough and uh, far enough that, that most of them are still vertical. All right, well, Jay, it is lunchtime. We're not gonna get all of these mysteries in three hours on two podcasts, but we are trying to get closer to the truth. And maybe we've gotten a little closer, who knows? Um, but it was fun at the very least. And we have more to talk about, you know, next time. And let's think about what we want to talk about and explore, but great job. And, uh, thank you for doing it, Jay. It was fun. So you're back to us. Well, it's fun knowing you and, uh, enjoy the projects we've worked on together and, uh, I hope you get a nice series out of all this. All right. Well, you're going to be involved in all of it. So um, I have questions here for next time that we will uh, we will dig into and we'll talk about the movie and everything else soon, okay? Thank you very much, Chris. All right. Tell Susie thank you. I'll see you soon, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Good job. Bye. Yeah.